Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. Today we are going to be discussing our seven part two of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, and I think this is going to be part two of three parts of this particular hour. And in this discussion that I'm summarizing, we got through the section that covered First Kings. First Kings is basically a fairy tale gone bad because it talks about Solomon and all the promise of his reign, but how it ended up with him making so many bad choices directly against the things that God had uh, said should be done, and then you end up with Israel dividing after Solomon dies. First Kings begins with the death of David, basically, and David, before he dies, admonishes Solomon to walk in God's ways, uh, to keep Yahweh's statutes and commandments and ordinances and testimonies according to that which is written in the law of Moses. But right away, uh, in chapter 3, we see that before Solomon does practically anything else except for kill a few people, he makes an alliance with the Pharaoh king of Egypt and takes Pharaoh's daughter, which are things strictly prohibited for the Israelites and especially for the kings. Right after it mentions that he took Pharaoh's daughter, it talks about the people sacrificing in the high places because there was not yet a house for Yahweh's name. Sacrificing in the high places throughout the Old Testament usually means sacrificing to idols, and this seems to be the implication also here because it says in verse 3 of chapter 3 that Solomon loved Yahweh walking in the statutes of David his father, except that he sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. It's personally hard for me to get my mind around a sentence that says, he loved, except. That is surely an example of worldly and not godly love. But it is even while Solomon is doing this, offering sacrifices in the high places, and that is where God appears to him and says, ask for what I should give you. So even in the midst of Solomon's disobedience, God is trying hard to get him on track to make him think about what is important. Now, Solomon's answer is good because he asks for wisdom to judge the people of Israel, and God acknowledges that that is a good request and tells him that he will give him other blessings beside. But what we have here is the foundation for a well-known story that shows that just having wisdom does not necessarily lead to having the right heart and the repentance that is necessary to truly come before God and receive his forgiveness and live the way he wants us to live. Nevertheless, Solomon gets to build the temple, which is also commonly called God's house or Yahweh's house. And in particular, in chapter 6, it says, in the 480th year after the children of of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build Yahweh's house. At this point, our discussion as a group turned toward the comparison of the temple 
in the New Testament to that of the bodies of those who follow Jesus Christ being the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the chapter, the hour seven, it says that the New Testament says that we are the temple of God seven times. Now, based on both what Jesus says in Matthew 22:36 and how it is recorded in Luke 10:27, um, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Um, in the in the book, he tries to make a comparison of the different parts of the temple to those parts of people as they are presented in that verse. But as a group, we just weren't convinced that there was anything biblical to base those distinctions on. Part of our reason for questioning that is that trying to say those different parts of us can get closer and closer to God as you walk through the temple, you get closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, does not seem to be borne out in how Jesus or the Holy Spirit talk about the heart, mind, and soul in Scripture. And I looked it up on a couple of different places, so let me give you some examples. First, here's a short story that is spoken of in Matthew chapter 9. He, speaking of Jesus, entered into a boat and crossed over and came into his own city, Behold, they brought to him a man who was paralyzed, lying on a bed. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, cheer up, your sins are forgiven you. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man blasphemes. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, this he said to the paralytic, get up and take up your mat and go to your house. So in this little interchange, Jesus distinctly talks about them thinking in their hearts, with their hearts, and also making decisions about good or evil in their hearts. Now here's a section from Acts chapter 11. I'm going to start with verse 19 to lead into it. They therefore who were scattered abroad by the oppression that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews only. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The report concerning them came to the ears of the assembly, which was in Jerusalem. They sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch, who, when he had come and had seen the grace of God, was glad. He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should remain near to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and many people were added to the Lord. So in that section, we see the heart as having to do with making decisions, having a purpose in doing something. In John chapter 16, let's start with verse 17. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is that he says to us? A little while and you won't see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And they said, therefore, What is that he says? A little while. We don't know what he is saying. Therefore Jesus perceived that they wanted to ask him, and he said to them, Do you inquire among yourselves concerning this that I said, A little while and you won't see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most certainly I tell you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she gives birth, has sorrow because her time has come. But when she has delivered the child, she doesn't remember the anguish anymore for the joy that a human being is born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. So there you can see that there's definitely some emotion and feeling associated with the heart. And finally, about the heart, let's go to Hebrews 10.22, where it says in the middle of a sentence, Let's draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and having our body washed with pure water. So here we have the idea of the heart being associated with conscience also being emphasized. All of this to say that it's not very clear at all that in Scripture the heart is some separate thing that is further away from the Spirit, but very much um, entwined with it. And so there's no reason to separate the different parts of the temple. Like if you're just doing something with your heart, you're not in the Holy of Holies. So again, we emphasized that the curtain was torn when Jesus died so that we are the temple. We're living by the Spirit and He enters us and we're always in the Holy of Holies with Him in a manner of speaking. So then the idea that's talked about biblically of being a carnal Christian versus being a mature Christian came up and how people nowadays tend to use the phrase to go deeper with God and what might that mean. Basically, what it came down to is that there is obviously a biblical basis for someone being a carnal Christian, but it is aligned with or spoken about in the same terms of being immature, and that as someone is a true follower of Christ, they will almost certainly mature. So if someone is in a carnal living in a carnal way, they might want to really examine whether they have become a believer, have they truly repented, and want to know the loving God who has given his life for them. So getting back to Solomon, he did not have the advantage of the natural indwelling of the Spirit that we as followers of Jesus Christ have, but he also did not appear to have a heart which tried to follow God based on all the choices he made. We do know that in the book of Ecclesiastes, which he apparently wrote towards the end of his life, that he saw all of these things that he had pursued as vanity, and so there's some indication that he may have repented, but it's not really clear. We compared this to the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who also had many opportunities for gaining glory and and being just a magnificent ruler over the whole earth. But when he was humbled and made to eat grass like the oxen for seven years, and when he came to his senses again, he very obviously repented and claimed God to be the one true God that anybody should worship. So it only took two generations for the nation of Israel to be divided. Now, David's line never did end because there was the promise that was made to Abraham and the promise that was made to David about his seed sitting on the throne. But for all the glory that Solomon's reign had, as it seems like he this is the peak of the nation of Israel, it's really only a peak in the worldly sense, but it's really showing the decay of the morals of the country as a whole, and also the oppression of the political system over the people uh, as a result of not following God's ways. And we even had to roll our eyes a little bit at the line where it says that Solomon was led into idolatry by his foreign wives. And just the 
the comparison of this, oh, poor guy, he had no wisdom, he couldn't turn away from that. Well, obviously, he did have wisdom that was granted to him by God. So when it says he was led into idolatry, you have to think that he was led pretty willingly. We marveled at the number of children he had and the fact that he simply could not have interacted with them, and also that his salary was 666 talents of gold a year, and that is approximately 25 tons of gold a year. Now, between knowing for sure exactly what was meant by biblical weights and the fact that even now gold is talked about in troy ounces and not not ounces the way that we're all used to using when cooking or weighing other things, um, there's an estimate that that comes up to about $1 billion a year comparatively. And of course, the number 666 is very curious. So Chuck Missler in the book says that Solomon was very brilliant, but he lacked moral vigor. And another way of putting that is that he did not have discipline. He knew things, but he didn't do things. In particular, not the things he knew he should do, or he did do the things he knew he shouldn't do. This led us to talk about some comparisons that seem to unfortunately describe Solomon, because in all of his wisdom, he seemed to have more of a fear of man than a fear of God. How else can you explain all of his choices of making alliances with these other countries when God had specifically told them not to do that? And he enjoyed comfort more than he enjoyed freedom. You could say that his comfort cost him freedom, both in terms of the freedom to live a life in the fullness of how God designed it, and also free from the constraints that are the natural result of making these alliances with these foreign countries. And last of all, there's the idea of arrogance versus humility. While the Bible never outright says that Solomon is arrogant, you certainly get a feel of a lack of humility as everything is described. But God is not caught off guard by any of this. From God's vantage point, he knows the beginning from the end. He knows the choices that will people that people will make. And so he knows exactly how to plan things to get the things done that he promises as he still allows people the choices that he allows them. So once again, in Solomon, we have the example that the wisdom of God is folly to the world. So while Solomon had wisdom from God to know things, to understand things, he used that wisdom to gain things of the world and not to follow and gain the things of God. And again, referring back to Ecclesiastes, in the end, Solomon found out that only God can fill a person with complete satisfaction. And again, whether he ended up realizing that or whether he just recognized it, we don't know for sure. At this point, we took a side trail and we talked about what is faith and where does faith lead us? Is faith just a realization of what God has done for us or is repentance required? The Bible speaks over and over of repentance that we must choose God and turn to him. And in doing this, this leads to a change of heart as he indwells us with his Holy Spirit because we are not fine with God. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but he has provided a way for us to be justified because he is a good God. Again, he is a good God who is the epitome, the perfect balance of both love and justice. If he was not a just God, he would not be a good God.
Some of the misunderstanding of this seems to come from uh, a couple of new people who are rewriting sections of the Bible and calling it translations, but it's not. They're really changing the meaning of things. And to delve into this more, I recommend some video discussions by a guy named Mike Winger, and I will put links to those on the website. But just to wrap it up, God's wrath is real and justified toward sin. And because we sin, we deserve his wrath, but he and his love and mercy has provided a way for us to be saved from that wrath because he loves us to the full extent of love. He is love. So he is not a vengeful God out to get us looking for something that we've done wrong. He already knows all the things we've done wrong, and he has gone out of his way to make a way for us to be saved and to know him and to love him and to have eternity with him. Okay, that's all of the summary of that discussion for today. I hope that you've enjoyed it. And next time around, I'll probably get on with recording more of Exodus. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 